Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you guys. Good morning. Uh, great to be here at Columbia International. Bring you greetings from Raleigh, North Carolina and uh, from the uh, Cambridge, uh, from the uh, Kirby Lang Center of Public Theology in Cambridge, UK. So October the 20th of 1998, I was 24 years old. I'm an old guy, 47. Uh, I got on a plane to head over to live uh, in Russia in an area that borders Central Asia, so Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And my goal overtly was to be a professor there, uh, to teach English there, uh, but covertly was to evangelize and start churches with the Tatar Muslim people, among whom there would never been a church planted ever in history in their language. And, uh, you know, I didn't speak the language yet and had never been out of the country before, and so it was a little bit intimidating. And I flew over there and spent two years. I'll tell a little bit of that story later, but it was quite a challenge. There were uh, climate challenges. It was 40 below zero in the winter. Little known fact, from my fifth floor apartment, I could take a cup of coffee. The only coffee they had was Nescafe Instant Coffee. If you haven't had that, it's absolutely awful. You'd rather wake up with your head sewn to the carpet than drink a cup of this coffee. So that's why I poured it out. But you could take it and pour it out the window, hot cup of coffee, and the only thing that hit the ground was coffee grounds and ice chips. That's how cold it was. It freezing instantaneously. Um, there were culinary challenges, the food that they ate. I remember my first week in country, uh, we went to some restaurant, and I was like, yeah, I want to eat, you know, a distinctively Tatar dish or something. And they said, oh, Mr. Ashford, we have exactly what you want. We have kumis. It is a lot like American milkshake. And it was like a milkshake in that it was white, vanilla milkshake, but it was different in that it was fermented mare's milk. So an entrepreneur in Central Asia had decided at some point to milk a horse and then to let it rot and then put it in a bottle and sell it as a delicacy. It was awful. I got served for breakfast one morning, fish jello, except it wasn't jello, it was uh, congealed fat with fish in it. How do you like that? for breakfast, it'll wake you up in the morning. So there were you know, all kinds of challenges. The biggest challenges, however, is that any time that I talked with somebody there, 99.9% uh, .9 of the time they were an atheist or a Muslim. And so their view of the world was very different from mine. Every time I walked into a room, I was very different than the people in the room. They believed differently than me. They looked different from me. I was always marginalized. I was always kind of the outsider, but I had a mission and that was to take uh, uh, the, uh, the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus to them. And uh, when I was there, I remembered one of the reasons I went when I was 24 is uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, which is before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, um, is that there was something called the Cold War. If you've listened in your history classes where the Soviet Union and the United States were sort of armed and against each other, they had missiles pointed toward us. When I was a kid, I grew up scared that I wouldn't wake up in the morning, that a nuclear missile would hit the house. I mean, we've never experienced anything like that in the past 30 years, that kind of a threat and that kind of a danger. But what my parents did is they took that threat and they turned it towards something good. And they would um, tell me stories of Christians in Eastern Europe and Central Asia who sacrificed their lives for the gospel. And I want to read you a few of those stories this morning. These stories are going to come from a guy named Richard Wormbrand. Have you ever heard of Richard, Richard Wormbrand? Probably some of you have. He was a pastor in Romania under the reign of Nicolae Ceausescu, a brutal dictator uh, during the Soviet days. And he was uh, imprisoned uh, for 14 years and put in isolation for three years. He lost his eyesight completely because he was in complete darkness for three years. He was a really amazing guy. And he tells a few stories about friends of his and about himself. And I'm going to launch our uh, time together today uh, with this. And um, he starts by telling about a, a friend of his, 
A pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. So he did brutal stuff like that during the Soviet Union, really brutal forms of torture. He was beaten very badly, then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself all the time. If he rested for just a minute, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand on his feet for two weeks, day and night. Imagine that. Communists wanted him to betray his brothers, but he resisted. So what they would do is they would bring a Christian in. Christians had to meet in what was called underground churches. So they'd meet in secret. Um, and if they got caught meeting, they would be sent to concentration camps and they'd be killed. And uh, so they would, bring, they would find somebody who was a Christian, they would bring them in, uh, beat the life out of them, and try to get them to give up uh, the names of, of other followers of Jesus who were in their network. And he uh, refused to do so, so they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to beat the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat his son until the pastor told them, uh, the names that they wanted uh, to know. And so the poor man, you know, was driven half crazy, as you can imagine. He took it as long as he could, and he cried out to his son, Alexander, I, I must tell them what they want. I can't bear to see you beaten anymore. And the son, remember, 14 years old, said, Father, do not do me the injustice of giving a traitor as a parent. Uh, stand strong. If they kill me, I'll die with the words of Christ to my lips. And so the communists fell upon him and beat him to death. Uh, with blood spattered all over the walls of the cell. He died praising God. Pretty amazing, uh, I would say, for a 14-year-old. Christians were hung upside down on ropes and beaten until they swung back and forth. They were uh, stuck inside of refrigerator boxes that had nails stuck on uh, every side of the box and where they would have to stand still. And if they became tired and leaned to the side, they would be, you know, they would, you know, lean up against uh, nails that would puncture them. Um, Wormbrand tells uh, a little bit about himself in the next story. Um, he said, Westerners have probably heard about brainwashing before. Um, he said, I've passed through brainwashing myself. It's the most horrible torture. We had to sit in prison and concentration camp for 17 hours a day for weeks, months, and years hearing communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, give up, give up, give up. So they played it just on loop um, all day long. And uh, he said, several Christians have asked me how we could resist brainwashing. And there's only one method of resistance to brainwashing, that is heart washing. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Christ, and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. Then he said, the tortures and brutalities continue without interruption. When I lost consciousness, he said, or became too dazed to give the torturers any further hopes of confession, I would be returned to my cell. And there I would lie untended and half dead to regain a little strength so they could work on me again. Many died at this stage, but somehow my strength always managed to return. In the ensuing years, in several different prisons, they broke my back in four places, um, and many other, they broke many other bones. They carved me in a dozen places. They burned and cut 18 holes in my body. When my family and I were ransomed out of Romania, so somebody paid a million dollars to the communists to release him, and he was released uh, to Norway. The doctor said that it was a miracle um, that, that he was alive at all. And he said, I believe God performed this wonder, the miracle of keeping him alive, so that you could hear my voice crying on behalf of the underground church in persecuted countries. Uh, he allowed one person to come out alive and to say his message uh, to uh, American Christians, basically. And uh, you need to know that as we sit here today, there are probably about two billion people in the world for whom they have very little opportunity to hear the gospel at all. And if they did, they'd be persecuted mercilessly for it. Most of that is in predominantly Muslim countries, but it's also elsewhere in the world, countries like Myanmar, uh, that's not a, a predominantly Muslim country. Here's another one. He tries to inject a little bit of humor here in the midst of a pretty uh, uh, dark story. He said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught uh, doing this would receive a severe beating. 
A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching in prison, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. Uh, We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. Everybody was happy. And he said, the following scene happened more times than I could remember. A brother would be preaching to other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing as his brothers, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he would continue his gospel message. Then the last section I wanna read is where he talks about uh, the motivation why they were willing to do something for which they knew that they would be beaten uh, mercilessly and and, uh, possibly killed. He said, we in the underground church have no beautiful church buildings, no beautiful chapels, but is any church building more beautiful than the sky of heaven to which we looked when we gathered secretly in the forests? The Christians I met in Russia said that during communist days, um, you know, they met in apartments and they would meet, they wouldn't meet on Sundays, they'd meet at other nights of the week, make it look like a dinner party so that they could hide themselves from the government. But every once in a while, all the house churches, the underground churches wanted to get together so they would throw a big party in the woods. They couldn't find a public facility, you know, it was illegal to do what they were doing, so they'd go into the woods. And they said what they would do to fool the police when they're going to the woods is they would carry cases of vodka with them, you know, to act like they were uh, getting really good and trashed, lit. Uh, probably the first time in history people brought cases of vodka to a, to a church service, but that's how they fooled the authorities and then they would worship in the forest. So that's what this guy is talking about, not vodka, but worship. The, and he said, the fragrance of flowers is better than the, the, you know, the, the, the smell of a, a, a beautiful church building. And the shabby suit of a Christian recently freed from prison was much more impressive than a pastor's nice clothes. And he said, I can never describe the beauty of this church. Often after a secret service, Christians would be caught and sent to prison. But there in prison, Christians wear their chains with the same gladness that a bride receives a ring uh, for her engagement. And he said, I have found truly joyful Christians only in the Bible and the underground church and in prison. And that's because I think it's really hard for us to understand what a treasure the gospel is when we have such a comfortable life and we have so many distractions cell phones and entertainment and all these other things that are not bad things, but they distract us from the thing that is most important. I want to read a chapter uh, today, Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read it. It's a story. And this is the story that motivated people like Richard Morenbrand. So I'm going to read the story and comment on it. Try to read it quickly. I talk 100 miles an hour with Gus of up to 200. And I hope you can track with me. We're going to tell the story, and then I'm going to come and pull five themes out of the story really quickly that relate directly to, to those of us in the room, people like me and, uh, and people like you. So Revelation chapter 5, you've got the Apostle John. He's on an island, kind of like Alcatraz. At the end of his life, uh, he's having to like crush rocks every day. Uh, you know, so his reward for following Christ is he spent the last part of his life in a concentration camp on an island. But it was on that island that God came to him and gave him a vision about what would happen in the rest of history. And that vision is captured for us in Revelation chapter 5. And here's what it says. John said, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So whoever this is on the throne, by the way, it's God the Father. He's on the throne. He has all authority over everything in heaven and earth. He's got a scroll in his hand. That scroll tells the contents of the rest of history and the rest of the contents of the book of Revelation. He's got it in his right hand, which means he's ready to execute it. That's symbolic. He's ready to do it. He's going to do this thing. This thing is going to happen. It's going down. And he said, uh, then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Is there anybody worthy to actually open this revelation of God? And not even the strong angel was worthy to open it. Because the scroll told about the redemption that Christ Jesus would bring. And we'll hear more about it in just a moment. And nobody in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, John said, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. 
And so he had a, a vision and he was caught up in the middle of this vision and he forgot what he had always known, that there is one who's worthy. And he began to weep because there was nobody worthy to open the scroll. But verse five, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, the line of the tribe of Judah is the kingly language to describe Christ Jesus. A lion is a powerful beast, the king of the jungle, and, uh, and will defeat all of its enemies. And that's Christ Jesus. He'll defeat all of his enemies. He's dangerous. He's wicked dangerous. We're going to find out in a moment he's not dangerous uh, for his people, for his children. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the lion is also a lamb. The lion who's the most powerful and the most dangerous, who's the king of the jungle. Uh, this lion, symbolically Christ, is also a lamb who gave himself and sacrificed himself for us. So he's the, the most dangerous, safe person you've ever met. And he's the safest uh, authority that you've ever met. He's a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. It's who you want to have on your side. Someone who's in control of the entire universe and yet who's willing to lay down his life on your behalf. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped, uh, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's really important right there. That's very important. Golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We're going to find that the prayers of Christians are the key to unlocking history. History unfolds as people pray. For God to do His will. And our prayers are viewed as incense. Incense is something that smells good. And so our, our, our prayers are pleasing God. He wants us to get on our knees and pray. <clears throat> Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. What a precious truth. If you haven't latched onto that truth, I encourage you to latch onto it today, coming from a big time sinner. Big time sinner. Speaking to big time sinners. That is a God in heaven, the supreme creator and judge of the universe, who gave his life for you to forgive your sins, to set you free from the shackles. Hopefully, one day you'll be able to sing it from the shackles, to sing about the shed blood of Christ and to worship him. Um, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a way of saying a whole lot of freaking people, more than the eye can see. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Everything good that be ascribed to anybody or anything is ascribed to Christ Jesus. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. It's a pretty powerful story and it's a true story. The Bible gives a true story of the whole world. Fox News doesn't give it. CNN doesn't give it. MSNBC doesn't give it. The Bible gives it. That's the true story of the whole world. It should frame our thinking. I want to pull out five themes that are relevant to us today. First theme is the theme of prayer. Those, those bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. God loves our prayers. Ephesians 6.18 says for us to pray always with all prayer and supplication. Why should we pray? I want to tell a brief story that will illustrate it. Instead of explaining it, tell a story. 
Um, so there was a, a, a young couple, uh, 27 and 28 years old, in the 1970s who lived in Danville, Virginia. And she was an atheist, he was an alcoholic, and their life was miserable. They were headed toward a divorce. Uh, but they moved into a new neighborhood in Dan Danville, and a woman came by, a factory worker, financially disadvantaged lady who was in her 60s, knocked on the door, said, hey, want to welcome you to the neighborhood. She wasn't even from that neighborhood. She gave him something she had baked. She shared the gospel with the young woman and said, you know, basically, and the young woman declined and said, thank you very much for the baked goods, but no, thank you for Jesus. I'm good. And she said, well, I'm going to pray for you if I have to every day uh, that you'll come to know uh, my Jesus. And those words rung in her head uh, because she was pregnant with a baby and she was wondering what she was going to teach that baby. And her, her eyes were, her heart was beginning to open toward, uh, toward God. And within about six months, she had come to saving faith in Christ. And then she began to pray. As that woman had prayed for her, she began to pray for her husband. And uh, after about six months, her husband uh, came to Christ. And then pretty soon, the two of them prayed for the baby they were about to have and dedicated him to the Lord and prayed that God would make him a missionary. And, and he became a missionary in 1998, in October of 1998, and went and flew to work with the Tatar people and was able to, together with his team, to plant the first church ever among the Tatar people. And, uh, and so that was my parents, and that's me. And I would not have been able to go and plant the first church ever with our team among the Tatar people if it weren't for the prayers of my father and mother. My father wouldn't be a praying man if it weren't for the prayers of my mother. And my mother wouldn't have come to know Christ if it weren't for the faithful prayers of the 60-some-year-old factory worker in Danville, Virginia, who had really nothing in life other than Christ. And so because of the prayers of, of an older lady who were just retired from a factory, you've got a church in Tatarstan right now of Tatar people, the first church ever in the Tatar language in the history of the world. And that's the power of prayer, that God takes our prayers and uses them in ways that we'll never know. Christina Johnson died. She has no idea that, that you know, I ever came to know the Lord, that, that I went and worked with the Tatar people, that churches then, since then planted other churches, and that's the power of prayer. So I want to encourage you to pray, and especially to pray for the short-term mission trips that you're encouraged to do here at Columbia International University. What an incredible thing for you to pray for the people who go on the trip, or for you to pray that God will clear your calendar so that you could go for a week or two weeks and share the gospel with people who will never hear the gospel if you don't go. You realize there are people who have no realistic chance of ever hearing the gospel unless you go. Somewhere between a billion and two billion people. And that you could change that this year. You'll never be at a time when you're more free than when you're a college student. And I would really encourage you. I love college students. Favorite audience by far. You guys are smart. You've got lots of energy. I mean, you can really make a difference in the world. This is an incredible way to make a difference in the world. Number two, the second theme is suffering. That you see that uh, Jesus shed his blood. Uh, on our behalf, and also 11 of his 12 disciples were killed for the sake of the gospel. And the 12th one, John, was sent to an island for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to suffer. The, the, you know, Jesus said in John 20, 21, his version of the Great Commission was, As the Father sent me, so I send you. And he showed them the holes in his hands and his side when he said that. But you're going to have to suffer if you're, you're willing to stand up for Christ. You're going to have to do some things that are not comfortable. You know, uncomfortable is a little bit less than suffering, uh, but we'll put that in the same category. Um, Paul said, all des who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when you suffer, here's the point you can make to the world. Um, when God allows certain things to be taken from you, and if you live long enough, 
you're going to experience pain and suffering. You may, you may have already experienced that in life right now. Some people experience it at a young age. It can be psychological and mental and emotional pain. It could be physical pain. It could be a divorce that your parents went through. It could be uh, mental illness. It could be abuse of some sort, uh, abuse from your peers at school or abuse from a relative. Um, it could be the, you know, being, growing up financially disadvantaged. There's all kinds of pain and suffering to go through. And if you haven't been through it at some point in your life, you will be. But when that happens, that's when you have the best opportunity to speak the gospel. Because when God has allowed certain of your other treasures in life to be taken out of your hands, and the only real treasure you have left is Christ, then you can say that Christ is better than anything life can give, better than anything that death can take away. Better than anything that life can give, better than wealth, believe it or not, better than fame, better than sexual pleasure, Better than having a great family and a great life and a great job. Better even is to have Christ. Because when you have Christ, you have, you have everlasting life, a life of flourishing under, uh, under Christ. And so therefore, it's also better than anything that, life, that death could take away. Worst case scenario, you're killed for the gospel. You have Christ. You have the greatest treasure. You have eternity with Him. And so I want to challenge you to be willing to suffer. Uh, and to treasure Christ in the middle of your suffering. And if we ramp it down a little bit, there's something short of suffering, which is called discomfort. And when you speak the gospel and represent Christ in the U.S. of A., there's discomfort, there's social discomfort. Because the people around you, it's awkward, you know, and, and they don't, they, they, they'll ostracize you. But I've been really grateful recently for some top 40 artists, for example, who've come out in their albums with uh, songs about the gospel and about God, and their albums haven't sold as well. And they've taken a lot of heat for it. Um, Kanye has done that. Just Jay Beebs, little Justin Bieber has done that. A little Nas even. Um, you know, I'm really uh, grateful for that. I mean, I, uh, no, no, let's not get derailed here. But what I'm saying is, I want to challenge you to uh, to get out of your comfort zone. How about a short-term mission trip here at Columbia International? This that is what is distinctive about this university, and it's priceless about this university that you have a chance to go somewhere in the world and experience a little bit of discomfort and take the gospel to people who would have never heard the gospel otherwise. Third theme is Christ alone. The Bible teaches a tough truth, Acts 4.12, that there is no other name under heaven by which uh, human beings are saved other than the name of Christ Jesus. That He's the one who does the saving because He's God. Nobody else can save us. Only God can save. You know, the interesting thing is that when Christ Jesus was put on the cross, that powerful religious, political, and military leaders colluded to sacrifice, to slaughter the Son of God. Powerful religious, military, and political leaders often collude for bad reasons in the public square. Religious leaders are notorious for being sellouts. We see it in our own country. I won't go into detail. Happens all the time. But the interesting thing is that when powerful religious, military, and political leaders colluded to kill the Son of God, God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit was colluding, conspiring to save the world. That's a beautiful truth. And you want to take that truth to the world. You have an opportunity to do that if you go on a mission trip. You have an opportunity to do it here in Columbia. Fourth theme is all nations. That this scroll, when it's unfolded, says that when Christ returns, by that time, the gospel will have been preached to all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. Every kind of person who's ever lived in the history of the world. And that's to prove that Christ is not a tribal deity, some kind of little God that's worshipped in a corner by one kind of person. There's something so beautiful and so powerful and so true and so good about him that he will find worshipers from every type of person who has ever lived across the face of the earth. And this will undermine and destroy actually racial prejudice 
national pride and all these sort of ugly things that undermine the gospel. I mean, the bad kind of pride. Um, when I became engaged, I went and bought a, a, a ring for my wife. And I got a little lesson in diamonds. They always do that at these stores and how beautiful diamonds are when they're well lit. And so they put, you know, if you ever seen a jewelry showcase, they put the jewelry in there. There's light flooded from every angle, fluorescent lights underneath, on the side, coming down from the ceiling. But he showed me, took me, they had something called dark room where they do something with jewels. I don't know what they do. A little weird, but took me into back in that room and he showed me, he said, you see, it's completely dark in here. You can't see a jewel, can you? I was like, no, bro, I can't see anything. Uh, but he turned on a small light and when he did, uh, the diamond it just became brilliant. It was beautiful. I mean, even just with a little bit of light, it was beautiful. What the Bible says that light is going to be shown on Jesus, worship, if you will, from every conceivable angle possible by every kind of person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. And you get to be a part of that when you participate in his mission. That's why I do want to encourage you again. Colleges, it is your best opportunity to say, I'll take a week, I'll take two weeks, and I'll do this. I'm not, even, I'm not taking a year. I'm not taking two years right now. I'm not taking 30 years. I'm not going over for my life. I'm just, I've got spring break, or I've got fall break, or I've got summer break, and I, or I've got to, you know, I'll skip school for a week. And, uh, you know, what, you know, and uh, I'm going to probably get tackled by the ESPN linebacker. Remember Terry Tate? Anyone remember? No? Okay. Um, fifth theme is worship. And the theme here throughout this whole chapter is worship. Worship is just recognizing God's greatness and His superiority and His goodness. And worship is both the fuel and the goal of Christian missions. It's the fuel of missions because when we actually get moved by God, like if you've been moved by this passage today and this story of Richard Wormbrand, and there's something that, that warms your heart or that kind of stops you dead in your tracks and says, wait a minute, there's something serious here, that's worship. And worship is the fuel for missions. It's what pushes us forward because why else would we do it? I mean, why else would we do something like that? But it's also the goal of missions. Because when we do missions, we embrace other people and draw them into the gospel and into the good way of life that is the Christian life so that they can also worship. So in conclusion, I want to say, um, I want to hold three truths in tension for just a second. One is that salvation comes through Christ alone. The second is that there are approximately 2 billion people who have no realistic chance of hearing the gospel unless you go and share it with them. So salvation only comes through Him. They're not going to hear it unless you go. And then the third truth is that it's never been easier ever in human history for any nation or any people to engage in world missions than it is for Americans in the 21st century. And so you have a chance to make a huge difference. And so we want to act. I want to encourage you to pray toward that end, uh, to be willing to have some discomfort, uh, to take the gospel of Christ, salvation in Christ alone, to people who would never have a chance to hear it, and, uh, and to expect that God will work in the midst of it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Uh, we praise you. We ascribe to you everything good in the world, truth and goodness and beauty, honor and glory and praise. Uh, we thank you that you've spoken to us in, in, in your word. Thank you for these college students. Uh, with their, their brains and their brawn and their energy and their, their love for you, many of them at least. Uh, pray that you will work in the hearts of young men and young women today uh, to be willing to put their yes on the table and say, Lord, here's my yes. You show me where you want me to go, but I've already concluded that I will go. Here's my yes. That's our prayer, Lord, and that you'll work wonders as they say yes and put their yes on the table, that you'll guide them and direct them where to go, 
uh, for missions work, which trip to take, and that you work uh, in them. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.